This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. The kōkako runs through the treetops feeding on leaves, flowers and fruit. The South Island kōkako, with its distinctive orange wattles at the base of the bill, hasn't been sighted in many years and may be extinct. A situation the blue wattle bird of the North Island may find itself in unless its habitat is preserved. Its delightful call includes a variety of rich organ and bell-like notes. or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Hello, friends. Today we're talking with Jay Ruka, Dean and Cathedral Co-Leader of Taranaki Cathedral, St. Mary's Cathedral in Taranaki. And we'll be talking about Christianity and Mari spirituality and finding out what's inclusive for people living in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Kiara, Jay, it's good to talk to you again. Yes, it is indeed. It's been a while, sir. Yes, it has. Now, you can um, podcast this by going to aor.org.nz and then going to podcast and going to Community or Chaos. Uh, Jay, what is your role as dean and co-leader of the Taranaki Cathedral? Uh, um, 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 Taranaki Cathedral. I think the last time I spoke to you, we were um, co-deans, but my um, fellow uh, partner, Dean, um, the the very Reverend Jackie Patterson, ended up uh, being called home to Te Waipounamu, back home to the South Island, where uh, her and her um, her husband uh, got some pretty cool, pretty succinct special jobs back where their boys lived, so they uh, decided to go back home to the South Island. So what that means is that uh, I'm now um, the uh, the the sole dean here at Taranaki, Taranaki Cathedral. And what's that? what that means is that I'm sort of um, the oversight leader for the work that goes on in all of the cathedral, which encompasses... Uh, the uh you, you know you what you your, your typical church you know sort of community and then also the other aspects we've got going on here like our um, education space we're about to open um 
our, um, our, our new um, Awara Nui that we've built here as well. Um, so my my role since the last time we talked has gotten a whole lot bigger. <laughs> uh, but thankfully, uh, we've got a, a, a small but growing team on deck here to help uh, cover that. And, and, and I couldn't do it without um, uh, the Reverend uh, Dan Lander, who is with me as well, who is our, our, our priest in charge in um, running Make, making sure our Sundays and our pastoral work of our community is working really well. So, 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 my job is to oversight the whole lot and make sure we've got teams in place to 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 make sure the the place is working, functioning. Uh, we're also in the middle of a very big project of strengthening our cathedral. So, um, there's there's yeah, never a dull moment around here. Okay, what's the team like and? Is it different, say, than sometimes a, a cathedral or a church will have one or two people and then they have a bunch of occasional volunteers? Now, this mm. is this slightly different? Oh, no, no, not really. You know, it's kind of about the same. Um, mm. And, uh, you know, and uh, you know, all, all to scale, of course, you know, of, you know, what your operations are, the size of your um, people you're working with and, you know, the, the size of your, um, you know, your property you're dealing with. So, yeah, we're, a, we are, um, you know, smaller staff and a, and an almighty team of incredible volunteers, All right. you know, that, that love this place. And, you know, I, I call myself, even though I'm the dean, I'm, I'm also the new kid on the block, you know. So I'm, I've only been in the role for two years. And um, so, so a lot of our volunteers know a lot more than me. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Now, what prepared you for becoming dean of a cathedral? What prepared you in your life? I guess. Yeah, um, how did you grow? Uh, okay. Yeah. Well, how, how did I? How did I grow? What, what does that quote mean? When you say how I did mean, I grow? I guess. Everybody in their life experience and their spirituality, if they're yeah. if they're le- leading in an ethical or spiritual role, they probably grow right. in, okay, grow yeah. into that job somehow. Yeah, look, look, it's a job that um, when I was offered it, I wasn't. Actually, how do I say this? Um, like, I'm not an Anglican, or I haven't I haven't been raised in the Anglican movement, if that was saying, even though I was in it for a couple of years when I was about three, four, and five uh, years old in little Ashurst uh, uh, church, Anglican church there. I, I, I Since the age of five, I was, I was brought up in more sort of Pentecostal, charismatic um, type church backgrounds. But, but anyway, all that to say is that when I was 19, I... I you know, on my own accord, I got involved in sort of Christian ministry and different movements. So I, I've I've been involved in you know typical Christian ministry, working with young people, um, doing what you might call traditional missions work as far as going you know overseas as well, uh, um, you know, and and um, helping young people give them cross cultural international mm-hmm. experiences and things like this, and then obviously working with other church movements in other areas in the country but so essentially christian ministry was my thing i i 
um, from around about 2010, 2011, I, I began to do, I, I, I shifted my my work to more itinerant speaking work. So I, I had been doing a lot of, essentially for many years, I was, I was traveling the country, doing a lot of speaking on our church history, which is how I got to know you originally. And, and of course, with the launch of the book, Who You Come Home, which we talked about last time. Um, so doing a lot of education around uh, the story of the Treaty of Waitangi and elements of that story that for 45 years have been absent from um, the way that that story has told. Um, and so in doing that, I, I was speaking at the Wellington Diocese Leaders Meeting in 2019, in about October 2019. And uh, I... Anyway, I spoke for two nights, and then as I was preparing to leave, um, the Bishop of Wellington, uh, Bishop Justin Duckworth, pulled me aside and said, look, I know I've offered you jobs before and you've turned me down, but the Bishop in, um, in Taranaki is looking for something for Taranaki, someone for Taranaki Cathedral. Would you be interested in that conversation? And essentially I said, yes, I would be interested in that conversation because uh, Aaron, my wife, and I always knew we'd be moving to Taranaki at some point. Uh, uh, and so anyway, uh, a week later, we ended up having a conversation with the bishop, who was also the archbishop, Philip Richardson, and um, said, look, here's what we're trying to do in Taranaki with reconciliation. Now my wahapapa, so my tribal roots, are uh, Te um, and Nati Mutsunga. Uh, so my tribal roots are here, even though I've never lived here. Um, but I always knew that I, I, because of that, I would move here one day, but I, I, I wasn't sure when. Cut a long story short, I went to people in my iwi who said, here's the job that's been offered me. Um, I, I, I wasn't sure about the job because St. Mary's has a bad rap um, when it comes to colonisation uh, here in New Plymouth as part of the colonising story. And it's kind of like, well, man, I don't want to live. I don't want to go and work at that church, you know, you know, because uh, these people hold uh, ha, ha, this church housed the British soldiers in, you know, eighteen fifty five, and then from eighteen sixty, you know, all the way through for about twenty one years. But um, anyway, the uh, three of three sort of elders in my iwi said to me, "When can you start?" <laughs> so my wife and I took that as the sign that we were supposed to move here. And we've taken on this role. It's very interesting because one, I'm not, uh, I haven't come through the Anglican tradition to take a very significant Anglican role. Uh, and I'm very, very mindful of the extended grace that uh, leaders in the movement have granted me and in, in giving me this role, which I don't take lightly. Um, and also I'm, uh, so I'm a very, I call myself the world's worst Anglican, <laughs> you know, because I, 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 in one regard, I, I, I don't, you know, I'm still a lot to learn about culturally what it means to be an Anglican, um, that sort of thing. And I'm also learning culturally what it means to be Te Atiawa and be in my rohi and my tūranga waiwai uh, for the first time as well. So um, I'm very grateful to have the backing of our significant leaders here in uh, Taranaki. Um, uh, and as I go on my journey of becoming known by my people at large, it's it's a very exciting role. 
um, not without its complications, um, but it's exciting to be in. So, yeah. The thing that brought you back to my attention, of course, I never forgot the first interview and also the uh, conference we had on um, Indigenous and Christian spirituality at, at oh, Otago right, University. Yeah. yeah. But was um, the uh, piece of artwork for Christmas. Oh, yeah. yeah yes. And I'll read what, I've, what was in the newspaper, the local Otago Daily Times. Some Anglicans and others were scandalized by the Christian artwork put up in front of St. Mary's Taranaki Cathedral, picturing a woman standing on a skull and a snake, saying, cast down the mighty and send the rich away. What does this have to do with, with Christmas? It sounds like Marxist propaganda. Where did these words come from? They go against the ethical social dynamics of the last 30 years. These words sound dangerous. Can you talk about this Christmas statement? Was was that an article in the Otago Daily yes, Times? Yes, it was. <laughs> and a picture. Oh, my goodness. I, did, I didn't know that. That's hilarious. Um Look, yeah, I, I put it up as a as a as a provocation for people to think about Christmas a lot more deeper than what they do. Um, I put it up as a provocation to myself to think about Christmas a lot more deeper than perhaps I might as well. Um, and yeah, yeah, I mean, essentially, those words are what you know what we might actually actually Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you know, the famous German theologian that lost his life. Uh, in, in the in the in Nazi Germany, but um, he called it the first Christmas, the first Christmas Carol, essentially the first um, Advent Carol, um, because essentially those lines come from a teenage girl called Mary who is pregnant with the Messiah, um, uh, who is contemplating this baby that is growing inside her womb. Uh, and is overwhelmed by um, an ecstatic spirit, you know, the Holy Spirit. And 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 as she's overwhelmed, she lets rip the song. And the song talks, and in, in, in her song, she says that this child will bring down the mighty, you know, yeah. um, send the rich away. In other words, like your 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 wealth and your status uh, uh, is not doesn't mean that you're in God's good books, in creator's good books, if that makes sense, you know. Uh, and it, basically all of these things and all, all these caste systems that we put in society to say who's in and who's out, who's who in the zoo, you know, who's cool and who's not, all, this little baby is going to cast that entire narrative down, you know. And anyone who is a good you know, good for anything follower of the way of Christ, that's that's a huge prerogative of the Christian vision is to, um, in a sense, a way, nullify the caste systems that we carry in society to say that this person is better than this person because they have this knowledge, they have this information, they have this wealth, they have this money. And to say that, no, uh, uh, humanity and humans are, on a, are supposed to be on a whanaunatanga level playing field you know so so those those words come directly from jesus's mum <laughs> okay what were the what was the reaction of, of people in taranaki 
Oh, well, gosh, man, the reaction of people all over the world, I, like it blew my mind how all of it, all, how far it went. The, co- the cool thing to me is that the reaction from the people of our parish, who were also shocked, were stoked. They're like, hey, yes, finally we're having a good conversation about the nature of Christmas. And, and, but, but you know, it's it's the typical keyboard warriors, people who mm-hmm. aren't a part of your community or, mm. um, you know, want to they, – they, they see the – they see the surface hmm. of things instead of going, hang on, this poster is a piece of art hmm. about a song which is a piece of art. And what is art supposed to do? Like art is supposed hmm. to prod, it's supposed to poke, it's supposed to challenge, hmm. it's supposed to beautify. Um, a lot of the Bibles this, like that. Yeah, and this and this piece of art was challenging people to get into the metaphor of what it means to when so when the line says cast the ritual way is that literal or metaphorical it's a piece of art so it's mm-hmm. metaphorical <laughs> but people read it literally you know yeah and, and be because they are just looking at the surface of things like they treat christmas on the surface of things you know that reminds me of the story i have I was lay uh, leading a Christmas narrative on an island, and beforehand, one of the people um, offered to um, photocopy it all. And I said, "All right, fine." And I didn't bother to look at the photocopy until I started the service, and they'd wipe those words out because they what, were what, offensive. What words? What words? Cast out the. Uh, Cast down the rich. I send the rich way empty and cast down the mighty. Those oh, are the hey, doing. <laughs> hey, Thomas, Thomas Jefferson wrote a version of the Bible where he took out all the miracles. <laughs> but um, they're dangerous words because I was a very young Martin Luther King was killed for advocating economic equality. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Uh, Bishop. Uh, Ramirez in Ecuador was killed at the altar and lots of priests and nuns in Central and South America were killed for advocating economic equality. Yeah, yeah. And that was in the 70s. That's right. So they're still dangerous words, I think. Look, you know, they they are, and I, I... well, the, you know, they are. Uh, are they dangerous words? Because yeah, they're meaningful. Maybe they are. Anything that's meaningful, anything yeah. that moves people to yeah. action, can be um, a bit scary sometimes. It doesn't mean they're bad words. It just means that if they move people, they may move society. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think you know the the the, the crazy thing is that I mean on. on I, th- I think people are too quick to read their own lenses into them instead of allowing the words to challenge their lenses before they speak. They just speak from their lenses. And just too many, I, I would say, intellectually weak people um, read the poster and say it's a communistic mantra, you know, um, 
And that's, to me, that's intellectual laziness. Yeah. But isn't the, in some ways, a good part of the Bible is metaphor and um, art and poetry? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, a lot of it is. is that's, the, that's the genre of literature. You know, the creation narrative in the first two chapters of Genesis is Hebrew poetry, you know, but... but I love um, it because they contradict each other, but they're Western, still both truthful. Oh, uh, some might say they contradict, but... Well, what I, I mean is that in, in the first chapter, God creates all life and um, men and women equally and says that is good mm. and... Um, using the word in the second chapter, um, man's created from the dust of the earth and woman's created from uh, uh, man's ribs because human beings aren't meant to be alone. Right, right. So they're both truthful in a sense. Yeah. But they're both different. And the people and the Hebrews had enough spiritual wisdom to put them both in That's right right. on top of each right. other. That's right. And and not but they're not contrary to a Hebrew mind. No. But they're read as poetry that is complementary to each other. Yeah, yeah. Whereas if if you read it through a Western scientific worldview, then then they're contrary. You know, uh, yeah. um, well, but that's because we're trying to read read ancient Hebrew poetry through a Western lens. But that's why I like those first two chapters, because they challenge me to read the Bible yeah. in a deeper sense. Yeah, you know, you've got, the, you got 150 Psalms, which are all songs, which are all essentially poems, yeah, you know, yeah. unsung poems. Uh, you've you know you've got the book of revelations mm. which is a vision which is totally metaphorical you know but people read that thing literally yeah so you're just like well hang on back up there you know it's like it's, you know it's mm. kind of like watching a movie and saying this is literally how the world is you know but mm. but you know movies are supposed to point to you know you know human truth social truth you know by telling fantasies or whatever they are you know they all play on um you know different things and and so the the scriptures there are a lot of um um metaphor and um poetry in them yeah but some things are some um should serious christians take some things that christ uh, taught us as very seriously and hold good to across time and culture. Um, for for me, absolutely, we should take everything he said seriously, and um, uh, importantly, that's that's you know the, the the point of being a Christian is to follow the teachings of Christ. And follow the ways of Christ. Um, so that's what I've devoted my life to, um, um, to try to do my best to follow um, the teachings and the spirit of Jesus. So, yeah, I, I, um, and 
I mean, I, I, I'm a little bit of a sucker for church history, and church history is full of people who, um, who are movers and shakers who follow the teachings of Christ. You know, that's true. Who, but we also have in America, for instance, people who interpret um, Christianity as God rewarding those who have done well in life financially. <laughs> and then we had in Germany um German schemes, eh? <laughs> German, German Christ, they had their own German Christian the National Socialist Party in Germany had their own German Christianity for which to view those they considered non German. Right, right, yeah. I don't know too much about um about that that, that narrative. You know, I, I knew that Himmler didn't like Christianity and, um, you know, was very much keen on creating a, you know, he had a whole pagan ritual going on. Yeah, they had um, that, but they also had um, German Christian Nazis who tried to that's right, change yeah. Christianity to suit their narrative. And that's what that's what South Africa was for a good number of decades, you know, yeah. for a good, good, good period of time. That's what, you know, New Zealand Christianity, or what you might say is British Christianity, you know, suited itself to use the Christian narrative to justify its colonization. Yeah. Um, you know, John Locke's economics used his scriptural narrative to justify his economic theories. Um you know, uh, so people use the Bible, they use the Christian narratives for essentially their own benefits and gains without realizing the consequences of what they do where, you know, um, yeah, yeah. It, it, it becomes an oppressive regime, but, but because you're using this narrative that's supposed to be, you know, self-sacrificing, loving, you know, it becomes a it becomes a charlatan religion. You know? yeah. yeah, I think we all have that balance, and unless unless we're perfect, that we have to be aware of how we're interpreting something because we interpret it through our own lenses. We do. We do. You know, that doesn't do. mean there isn't truth in objective facts, though. So. Um, mm. I might play a song. Okay. And we'll come back. Okay.
was a gift to be simple about um, simplicity and grace, I think. And um, if you want to podcast this, you can go to oar.org.nz and going to podcast and going to Community of Chaos. We're talking with Jay Ruka, Dean of the, and of the Taranaki Cathedral at St. Mary's. And about um, Mari and Christian spirituality and history together. Could you uh, talk about the factors that encouraged Mari people to take up Christianity and why, um, and why the enthusiasm for Christianity increased markedly after the eighteen forties? Yeah, um, I mean the the increase of. Um, the increase of Christianity was in the late 1830s, really, from okay. after 1835. Um, and, um, you know, I mean, other people will probably have other 
other reasons for this. Um, but my, you know, my recalling, recollection is, 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 is a couple of things. Um, one, there was a witness, firstly, in the psyche of our people, um, there was an understanding of a new form of spiritual ways of being, or if you could say it like that, were coming. In other words, you know, our our, our tribal peoples had prophets. And, you know, before Pākehā got here, there were resonance of these prophets speaking of a new atua who was coming. Um, or, uh, uh, yeah, so a, a, a new um, uh, sort of uh, spiritual understanding was going to make its way or find its place here. So firstly, I would say there, were, there, there was that witness, you know, there were those sort of what you might say prophetic intuitions that were in a number of tribes um, around the Motu, um, so pre-European. So there, there was that there. There was then, I would say, that um, the musket wars of the 1820s for that, that decade w- were brutal. Um, and by brutal, I mean a, a once when our people, when Hongihika, uh, you know, got the muskets, you know, with the help of uh, missionary Thomas Kendall, I might add, um, when he got hold of those muskets and they were pres- brought to this land on a warfare scale, um, that brought a layer and a level of devastation that probably I don't think our people had ever experienced that sort of type of mass death before. And particularly all over the North Island, of course, Taropaha, um, you know, does take the musket down to uh, Kaitahu um, and, and um, to Waipainamu. But uh, I, I, th- I think the, the so the so the, the the technology of the muskets brought just changed warfare and just brought bloodshed on a new level. So you have a, you have a decade of bloodshed um, amongst our people. That's um, yeah, I want to almost say insurmountable. It's just, it's huge. Um, now, Christianity had been here before the musket wars, but what hadn't been here in any meaningful way was um, uh, was probably was the teachings of Jesus and the stories of the Bible, Paipiata Tapu, um, in the Māori language, but they weren't just in the Māori language. Māori didn't read. You know, we were an oral people. But when the the two when the two pronged approach of literacy and then the written word came to our people, the predominancy of what our people were reading were the stories of Christ. And here was this Atua, this uh, who was called the Son of God, um, which meant 
you know, Māori understood that if you're a son, you're in the family. So, you know, you, as, as far now, you, you, you know, you're saying you, you are God. Um, uh, this one who was creator said, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, you know, which is since, you know, that's in the Old Testament, but it's symbiotic to the understanding of a Māori understanding of utu, you know. So um, reciprocation, so if you take an eye, then as payment you take an eye you know in other words you yeah. don't take the, you don't take the head <laughs> you know <laughs> if, if you know what i mean so an eye for an eye you know not an eye for a head if that makes sense um uh, uh, um so so here were the teachers of christ saying an eye for an eye you know if you've heard it said but i say you know for anyone who even thinks a bad thought to their brother or says a bad word you know, says you idiot or whatever, you know, then that's that's on par because it's about the heart. And then he said, I say, love your enemies. And so here was this Ato who was saying, what, love your enemies? Pers- you know, bless those who persecute you. And then, and then, oh, my goodness, this Atua doesn't sort of fight with warfare and bloodshed, but fights by the bloodshed of laying down his own life. You know, uh, like like that like that message at that time was exceptional, but the message still exceptional. Yeah, and, and the message, but the message fit, it fit the fakaro, it fit our Maori way of thinking. You know, um, on 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 so many levels. So the the the, the thinking, and this is important. It wasn't the European missionary culture. That our people were signing up to, it was, it was the facado in the words of Jesus that these British missionaries were saying, or all these French missionaries were saying. But it was the facado that these that that were in these teachings and in the pipetta that made sense to a Maori way of thinking. So they were really, um, um, yeah, to 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 use the word of you know, again, of like a genre, like the ways of thinking were of the same genre, so our people understood it um, in a way that Western Christianity doesn't as well, you know, and still doesn't on many fronts. Um, so I, 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 I would go, what turned our people on was that the thinking was very, very similar, but it, it offered an antidote to a level of death that our people had never seen before. It offered a way of life. It offered a way of healing. That um, uh, when I say, I mean it, I mean the gospel, the good news, te rongopai o te atua a ihu karaiti, the the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. His teachings and his his way um, actually brought a, a, so much healing at a time that was needed for our people. Yeah. All right. Could you talk about the roots of Maori passive resistance? Um, oh, look, look, yeah. Um, in the, uh, particularly, well, it's well known in Perihaka and in Taranaki. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, look, I, 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 to, to be honest, Marvin, I, I wouldn't want to call myself, well, I'm not an expert on that at all. You know, I'm, I, I, I don't know too much really about, um, um, even though a wakapapa, um, 
Kinati Mutsunga, I don't really know the story of um, that well of what happened when our people sailed over there in 1835. Um, you know, I, I, I know we were fleeing the uh, essentially the bloodshed that was happening here, um, you know, uh, from the 1820s um, through to the early 1830s, you know, which is why Ngāti Mutunga and Ngāti Tama, many in Tatiawa, you know, left this at all here to find new spaces was because we were fleeing bloodshed. But then to go to Rekohu and, and, and with our Moriori and as I said, do the same thing as what we were done here was, you know, um, it's the nature of um, uh, a human cycle of violence, you know. Yeah, also, one of the tragedies of history, it seems to me, is that sometimes people that have been victims or suffered greatly, sometimes they really learn from it and turn oh, it Oh, absolutely. But, but, uh, but then you know, uh, sometimes people, I mean, yeah. Israel makes me sad in some ways because right, sometimes yeah. you, you, it hardens you instead of softens you. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, but the, the story of, um, um, uh, um, you know, uh, Moriori and their, Passive resistive response. I, I look. I, I don't know enough to comment about that story, you know. And and the, the you know, while I while I am um, fairly frequent out at Parihaka, um, you know, it's also not not necessarily my story to tell. Other okay. than other than what I do appreciate is that um, for Tōu and Tawiti, I just absolutely love and I'm a fan of the way that they took the stories of Te Rongapai, they took the stories of Christ and made it work for them without the cultural paraphernalia of, of an English church. I think that they also probably, in people, I think they probably influenced Gandhi and maybe they influenced passive resistance in America. Um, yeah, uh, I don't know uh, that. That's just a um, thought. Look, the, the the eighteen thirty-five date is is very, very interesting because um uh that date I think predates there was a guy oh gosh I can't remember his name right now, but there's a guy in the States that wrote a bit of a treatise about um passive resistance in eighteen forty, I believe. Or could have been eighteen thirty-nine. Um William, oh, I can't remember the guy's name. He, but essentially, he his his thinking fueled. Uh, who's the famous president over there? Abraham. Abraham, Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln. Yeah. You know, um, uh, they 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 just he he ran a movement in the states. In the from the late eighteen thirties, I believe, in eighteen forties, um, that was just like absolutely bent on showing love um, at all costs, especially at cost to yourself, um, and that 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 was the, that essentially that was the conclusion of the teachings of Christ, is that you could not take up arms under any circumstances. Yeah, and he was put in prison quite a few times and 
you know, all that sort of stuff, you know, but the, the, the um, his, you know, and, and his teachings obviously heavily influenced um, uh, Leo Tolstoy, um, you know, and his writings in Russia, um, which of course heavily influenced um, Mahatma Gandhi, which of course then influenced um, um, uh, Rustin Bayard, uh, who was really was the thinking tank behind the civil rights movement, but uh, because he was a gay man, they didn't put him up front. But, but he, um, yeah, he was. A man. he was he was he a was he was a strategist. He 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 was the passive resistance strategist, yeah. and Martin Luther King was the was the, the the voice. You know, he was the mouthpiece. Um, but the strategist was Bayard Bayard Rustin. Eh? I think that's his name. Um, yeah, you've got his name right. He was a Quaker, by the way. Oh, was he? Yeah, yeah. yeah but um, but when you when, again, when you look at those stories, the story of Aotearoa um, is not mentioned in those stories. But what we do know in the 1990s is that the Gandhi Foundation and Martin Luther's granddaughter, you know, I, th- uh, I forget if it was 95 or somewhere around there, 98, uh, came out to Parihaka to honour Tohu and Tawiti. As as the you know the original instigators of their passive resistive movement, you know, because they they learned about um, you know it, it, the the school of Gandhi knew of like Gandhi knew of Tohu and Twiti, you know he knew of the story of um, um, Tohu and Twiti and Pariyaka down here. Yeah, that's my um, understanding too. You know, yeah. Yeah, so, which is quite a powerful thing, and, you know, it's another one of those. For, for me, you know, for anyone who has ears to hear, you know, that's one of the strategic callings on the nation of Aotearoa is that passive resistance story. Um, and really, since as much as there is a problem with the way Te Tiriti or Waitangi, the Treaty of Waitangi, is represented in Aotearoa, New Zealand. The approach to it of passive resistance is admirable amongst our people. Yeah. Do you think that story should influence our foreign policy and our dealings with other nations? I think it should, absolutely. Yeah. I think it's 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 absolutely how our special bent. Yeah. Does it fit in, for instance, with the non-nuclear stance? Non uh, non non-nuclear weaponry. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, yes. You know, um, I think what has been researched as far as um, you know. Um, uh, the reorientation and the reimagination of nuclear power, you know, for the coming generations could be quite um, uh, an exciting. I'm thinking of it as a weapon more than a source uh, of power. But thinking of it as a weapon, absolutely, yeah. Mm. You know, nuclear nuclear energy, for want of a better word, is, word either way, it's still the energy of creation. Like it's still 
the creative world. Um, what is missing from it is is human ethics of the way of creation. You know, so creation is not creation doesn't destroy itself; it regenerates itself. So, what we've discovered, you know, I, I, I think. You know, humankind is being too manipulative in what it wants to do with energy and how it uses energy and how it re refuels energy. You know, but um, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I'm getting a bit too deep and off target here, mm. but but I, all that to say is that I deeply believe that the Maori imagination needs to be the leading ethical imagination um, uh, on how we understand energy in its way forward you know and you have to put nuclear energy into that into that paradigm because it's a part of our world now so yeah do you think that um when we're considering the way forward with climate change and sustainability that we need new technologies, but don't we need a a new way of looking at the economy and looking at growth and looking at how we live as a communities? That Look, that... yeah, yeah. Um, again, you know, 1927-ish, you know, um, two scientists, uh, it's credited as, um, uh, oh, gosh, his name's just gone out of my brain. What's the guy? Is it Kuhn? Kuhn? Thomas Kuhn? Um, is creating the um, paradigm, the concept of the paradigm shift, but he got his um, facado from a Polish scientist called Michael Polanyi. Polanyi, and um, you know they proposed, you know, proposing the ideas of the paradigm shift, and essentially one of their ideas is the only way paradigm shifts can happen is when an external force hits the internal and moves it. In other words, you know, to take the idea of a paradigm sh- shift, according to Western science. And this, in scientific theory, aka a paradigm shift, it's an oxymoron to think that the problems created by the Western world can can be solved within the Western world. I know. (laughs) Uh, uh, Because its thinking is so out of control around the concept of being so economic-based and that economic basis is on, you know, self-interest, you know, uh, let, let, let the invisible finger guide the free market, which is based on individual self-interest, uh, that notions of gross domestic product and uh, growth and growth for the for our GDPs, that whole system cannot solve our problems. So you need, there needs, either we need a cataclysmic event like an ice age, to stop this, or there needs to be a radical shift within the moral framework of human beings. A radical shift. I think the teachings of Jesus um, in one area are a secret to that radical moral shift, but I also think that the indigenous systems are a... Um, are, a system, are, a, are a systemic framework uh, to create a radical shift. So 
when people are decrying the ideas of a Māori health authority, when people are decrying um, three waters, um, firstly, I get that they don't like being dictated to. That's one thing. But essentially what they are in their decrying of the notions of three waters, what they are also doing is shooting themselves in the foot. Because our current systems of democracy are not going to heal the planet because the majority just want money and to be well off. They don't care about the planet. They don't care about putting systems in place to actually create intergenerational well-being. I think I disagree with you a bit about the majority of people because I think the majority of people don't seem to have a say or aren't heard. I think it's the minority of people who have much of the wealth and power in the world who are in and, this case look, making yeah, the wrong yeah. decisions. And they are, and they are, and how do they get their power? Democratic systems, right? Uh, so, that, so that's where, yeah, I, I'd agree with you there too. Um, but um, I, I think what we need, like I think, I think the indigenous imagination uh, is 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 the framing is it needs to be the framing structure that I think can heal um, the world okay. a lot quicker than what we are. Um, I, I think the indigenous knowledge systems. And in partnership, you know, not only, but in partnership with the best of, um, you know, Western scientific approaches and understanding of the world. I mean, that there is a is a com is a creative combination. I think that can bring okay. so much healing. The problem is, is that the Western scientific imagination in many areas is um, held by. Um, economic and military power, you okay. know, from economic and military gains and not for uh, home games. And by home, I mean our planet. What would you say to people who claim that the greatest barrier to education, health care and housing is economic inequality? And um, you- Yeah, I, look, I, I, would say, I, I would say that absolutely, absolutely right. I mean, you know, I'm 47. Okay. I bought my okay. first house when I was maybe 44, 44, you know. Um, so, I, you know, I've only recently really become a, a, a homeowner. In the space, in, in a three-year space of owning a house, I can't believe what that's done for me economically. Okay. Well, thanks a lot for coming on board. You know, so and, I, I think it is a thing, yeah. And I really appreciate um, our conversation, and we'll have to have another conversation. We won't <laughs> wait. We won't wait so long. It's time. Yeah, right, Marvin. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Jay. It's good. Uh, good to be no, in touch you. with you again. Cure. Cure. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air.